Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson. And I'm the other guy. Um, you know, what's his face? Yes, welcome to the Squiggly Podcast. One year old. This is the March 2013 podcast. And uh, little did we know in March 2012 that we would have the the organisational skills and the uh, enough to talk about for a full year. But here we are. I would have banked on some kind of mutual suicide pact at this point. Yeah? Yeah, I certainly didn't see both of us still being alive. I was proved wrong. You feel pretty foolish now. It's nice to look back and see who we've, who we've had on the show, who we've interviewed uh, in the past, uh, the special events that we've been to. You know, we've been to Annecy, we've been to Encounters. We've had some fun around Christmas and, um, and Halloween. You know, we've, we've interviewed the creme de la creme of animation. It's, uh, we really have peaked too soon. We really have, yeah. Where the hell do we go from here? Maybe tune in or maybe not. You know, it might be too bad to tune in. On the next podcast, we're going to interview the guy from the stationery store who sells us the peg bars. So yeah, who'd have thought it? When we started uh, March 2012 with Mr. Peter Lord, quite a big start, and Fraser McLean, Barry Purvis, Disney animator Nancy Beeman, Billy West, Rob Morgan, uh, Ant Blades, uh, the guy behind Bird Box Studios, uh, John Christopher Lucy. David Sproxton, uh, can I carry on listing? Or is this going to take a while? What, 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 what do we do, Ben? <laughs> I think the whole rest of the birthday podcast would just be a, yes, a methodical list <laughs> of everyone we've interviewed and every topic we've discussed. You know how much I love lists and, and, and methods and things. Uh, so, yes. Yes, it's called OCD. Yes, yeah. I think we should be very proud of ourselves. Yeah, let's just have a big wacky backslap moment. <laughs> Given that we have... Let's face facts, literally nil journalism experience. <laughs> or, well, now I guess we do, because we've been doing it, but, like, we didn't really to start with. We were completely winging it. Anything that seemed professional, that was us just making it up as we went along. Now, of course, we're masters of our craft, Stephen. As yeah, I'm sure yeah. you'll, you'll readily agree, as will the listening audience. It's nice to see an idea actually be followed through on. This podcast has gone on longer than any of my relationships, and that's something to be proud of. I'm like your first long-term commitment. Yes, you are. Yeah. I have to say, that makes me feel very pretty. <laughs> well, it certainly should. Well, good for us. Thank you very much for everyone who's been listening for the last year as well, and putting up with the nonsense as well as the uh, the fine interviewees that we've had on the show. It really has been a pleasure putting them together for everyone who does listen, who does support, who does spread the news. Thank you for listening. Yes, to reiterate, it's the interviewees who I think are pretty much the main component of our appeal. Not that our whimsical, sometimes ribald banter isn't without its charm. We've had some fantastic support. People who believed in us and let us spread our wings. Yeah. Eh? How flowery of you, Ben. Steve, did you ever know that you're my hero? <laughs> Carry on. I don't know if I can say another lyric without needing to pay royalties. And you know what? I mean, outside of the podcast itself, the last 12 months have been pretty uh, uh, interesting for Squiggly. I mean, it's really developed. It's flourished. Built up a, a loyal audience. Well, some people have been loyal since since the early days, since since David set the thing up. David Smith set the thing up. Squiggly version 1.0 starter of the whole endeavor. Back when it was a, an actual print magazine... And then, uh, as we all know, print is dead. Mm. <laughs> so it sort of resurfaced a few years back on, as a sort of online venture. And then uh, yourself and myself came on board. And then we kind of inherited it, I suppose, mm. with our lovely friend 
Aaron, mm-hmm. who has been contributing as well of late and is uh, hard at work making it all spiffing for the uh, for year two of our uh, our reign. So yes, Squiggly now under new management, or as it has been since I guess October, I suppose. Yeah, somewhere around there. In case anyone was wondering why perhaps the the public persona of Squiggly may have come across a little differently, I don't know. Maybe it's exactly the same. It's kind of like stealing someone's baby. It is, yeah. And now we're sort of conditioning it into like a a killing machine. Yeah. Okay, Ben, what's on this month's Squiggly podcast? Well, as per, we have some interviews with interesting fellows in the animation-y world out there. The Oscar-winning Daniel Greaves of Tandem Films, which is a studio I'm sure a lot of you have heard of, talking about his work and uh, the current film he's working on, Mr. Plasty Mime. Also Richard Golly Starzak, who is the creative director, main head honcho guy of uh, Shaun the Sheep, the uh, very, very popular Ardman TV show, now in its third season, putting together its fourth season. All that and more on the Squiggly Podcast. Because we know that's what you like. Always wanting more. Quite some sad news this month, since we recorded the last podcast, which I think is worth mentioning, because the the man had such such an effect on the the animation industry, and in some respects was a a kind of a centre for the animation industry. Uh, Mr Bob Godfrey, unfortunately, passed away in February this year. Probably best known for Rhubarb and Henry's Cats, although he also uh, won an Academy Award for Great, uh, his film about Isambard, Kingdom Brunel. And obviously the Karma Sutra rides again, uh, Dream Doll, tons of fun short films. Very sort of tongue-in-cheek, British, it's unfair to say Monty Pythony. Um, I believe that Terry Gilliam actually um, owes a lot to, to Mr. Bob Godfrey. Mm-hmm. From the reaction to the news, it does seem that so many people were affected by this guy and his work and were, if not directly influenced, had enough of an awareness and appreciation and respect for what he did. The impression I get, he was one of these particularly uh, hard-working guys who just really kept interest in the medium alive during some of the rockier patches. Of, uh, mm-hmm. of animation and animation's history. That particular subdivision of animation being, you know, UK animation. What I've seen of his stuff, it does have that particularly British sensibility and that sort of sense of, uh, not patriotism, but, but national identity. Yeah, sad business. But uh, had, had a very good run. Someone who I'm sure at the end of uh, his career and his life could look back and feel like he contributed, he weighed in. What has been nice, if you can take something nice away from a death, is the sort of reflection of all of his work. If you look on some of the blogs, everyone's got a, got a lovely story about how they met him and about what they thought of the man. A nice way of topping his contribution to British animation uh, would be his Oscar acceptance speech, uh, which I'll, I'll read out here. He said, um, did you see that TV programme about British animation being finished? Well, forget it. We're still here. I think that's just a, a nice way of uh, underlining his legacy there. Sums up the attitude rather nicely. Yeah. Yeah. To keep things on a positive note, also in between podcasts were this year's Oscars. Following on from our previous discussions about nominees rooting for uh, certain films, Steve, who did you want to win in each category this year? I'm I'm happy that uh, I'm happy that Paper Man won. Adam and Dog was a gorgeous film. 
it was nice to see them all being released online as well. Um, I read something that uh, the director of the Maggie Simpson shot, um, David Silverman, said uh, about the Oscars, you know, about how, um, you know, the animated short Oscar was always a commercial thing. So, you know, that kind of made me lighten up a little bit about the idea that Maggie Simpson shouldn't be in the Oscars. Yeah. Pez, always nice to see something fun in there. And and I suppose the only sort of British connection being uh, Head Over Heels was also, uh, you know, a finely crafted short. From the short films, I would have been happy to see any of them win. But, uh, mm. you know... Just given the the way that we followed Paperman, you know, my first ever interview for Squiggly was with John Cars, as well as Clay Catis and, and Paul Briggs from Disney Feature Animation. But uh, he did mention in the first interview that he was working on a short film, and this is the film, you know, and it went on to win the Oscar. So um, it's nice to see the development of that piece and, and to, you know, such a nice film take away the award. But the feature films created quite the ripple, didn't it? I mean, were you like me? You woke up and just read Twitter I read the social networks and just saw, just saw the venom. Suddenly the everyone in the world hated Brave. Yeah, yeah <laughs> the absolute venom for Brave. I mean, a few people did say Paranorman should have won, but most people just, just harsh, harsh words for Brave. Yeah, poor little ginger lass. Yeah. She just wanted to belong. It's not a bad film. It's not Pixar's a game it's still an incredibly well crafted put together film it's not the film I wanted to see win I'll admit that much but what are you going to do what film did you want to win uh, somewhere between Pirates and Paranorman I would say right if you had a gun to my head I would probably say Paranorman because of mm. just the way that it was all crafted and put together it's quite a beautiful film and the achievements that Leica always put into making every film they advance the medium what about yourself what did you think to the shorts first I, I had this thing where I, I would have really liked to have seen the NFTS uh, win. There was something about that film in particular that when you have a sort of personal attachment to something, perhaps, or and this is a film that I liked when I saw it the first time and I just enjoyed it more each time I saw it. And that's sort of rare when you mm-hmm. see films a lot and you do a lot of festivals and that kind of thing is um, that it improves with repeat viewing and it gives you more cause to analyze it and, and look at how it was put together. And, uh, you know, I, I did get a good vibe from the other films. I thought Paper Man was charming. It didn't blow my mind in the way that, that I was kind of led to believe it would. And, you know, that's that's not really its fault. It's the fault of uh, hype, which is a, a little pernicious demon that you and I, Stephen, can even contribute to every once in a while. Mm. Um, every yeah, once I'll, in a while every <laughs> podcast what are you talking about Ben <laughs> yeah, fair enough fair enough sir. you know Whoopi Goldberg won an Oscar so it's all f***ing meaningless <laughs> <laughs> you know what film Al Pacino won an Oscar for Scent of a Woman wow he didn't get <laughs> when he played Michael Corleone so no. perspectives as for features I said I'd probably I, I liked Paranorman the most I guess, but mm-hmm. I don't know what, like Oscars is such a weird kind of accolade because there's this kind of assumption or, or whatever that there's a sort of hallmark of classiness about it as well as quality. And I don't think a film has to be classy to be good. It can be incredibly impressive and it can be uh, uh, something that, you know, encourages discussion. But, you know, plenty of films that purport to be, you know, intellectual or, or on a sort of higher plane aren't necessarily good films to give something that's sort of joyously camp and and fun and and slapsticky like paranorman and oscar or that it wouldn't get an oscar 
isn't that surprising to me, even though it was the film I liked the most mm-hmm. out of all of them, if you know what I mean. I can sort of see the logic behind giving it to Brave, and equally I can see the logic behind people being a little annoyed yes. at the same time. But, uh, yeah, you know, hey, the world keeps turning. It does, it does. The Oscars were sort of highlighted by a, another another segue here, Ben. There was a, a protest at the Oscars by the, the visual effects industry. And what has since become known as the Green Spring. Uh, you may have noticed on Facebook and Twitter and every other social media outlet, everyone sort of coloured their screens in green, which signifies a green screen. And this is because uh, it's the VFX debate, which sort of cast a, a shadow over the Oscars this year, not over just over the animation Oscars, but over everything. You know, all eyes were on Ang Lee and his sort of his lack of acknowledgement for the hard work in VFX industry. And also uh, the fact that Rhythman Hughes mention got sort of cut out hmm. of the ceremony. So quite a few guys in the VFX industry are quite mad. They're not going to take it anymore. They're not going to take it anymore. They've had enough. <laughs> mad as hell. It's led on to quite a fascinating ongoing discussion to the state of the VFX industry. You know, this ununionized entity, an entity where a company as successful as Rhythm and Hughes can go bankrupt because they have to supply films with the cheapest possible VFX. Otherwise, they'll be undercut themselves. You know, it's quite a cutthroat industry. So the, the question in the air now is to what do you do about it? Yeah, there was a point where... I was sort of headed in the VFX direction career-wise, and then I kind of took a left turn and went into animation from there, you know? And uh, more than a few times, I sort of thought back on that decision and and questioned it a bit. It just didn't sort of occur to me until recently how much they'd get d***ed around. Like, I just kind of had this assumption that VFX people, because of the labor that goes into it and because of the incredible detail and all that jazz they were just sort of respected and very well paid and very uh, well treated and the idea that they're making such huge concessions to payment and putting in so much overtime without the pay and that kind of thing was 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 news to me to be honest and to, and to me yes yeah so what do you think the outcome will be well, what I think doesn't really matter. I mean, it's, it's all in the hands of these the guys that are, are, are banding together, you know, this Green Spring movement now. I think it's called VFX Solidarity or something on, on Facebook, and they've recently held meetings. So I think it's going to be an interesting thing to watch, an interesting thing to see how how this progresses. I think being in a union is the only way to do it. I've got a, a lot of respect for, for unions and things like that. I mean, look what happened when the writers went on strike. Mm. Uh, look at the effect that had on the film industry for like a year and a half. You know, it would be interesting to see an, an industry if they were unionised and they did go on strike in the in the future. You know, the effect that it would have on on entertainment. Be interesting to see, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think it should all end in a big elaborate CGI gunfight yeah. with lots of VFX. <laughs> I'd like to see it without the CGI, so it'd be like that that scene <laughs> in Spaced. Where they're just you know slow motion, yeah. We've got an article on on Squiggly by Tom Coleman, where he just basically underlines what the VFX debate's about. So if you're not entirely sure as to what side of the fence you're on, or, or if you want to sort of find out a little bit more, have a look for the the article. I think it's titled "It's Not Easy Being Green." It's maybe a good place to start. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Ben. Steve, what do you think of that lovable 
Fluffy scamp Sean the sheep. I think he's a lovable fluffy scamp. Has he captured your heart? He certainly has, yes. With his, his Buster Keaton-esque antics. There's a good thing about well-made children's television is when it's just inherently likable. No matter if you're, you know, the kid watching or the parent who has to sit through the lineup of CBBS or CITV or whatever other networks there are that have that big block of programming content for children. Yeah, I think it's one of those really good post, you know, Wallace and Gromit Ardman celebrations of silent comedy because they they're all really big on that. Usually, people like Peter Lord et al will make an appearance whenever they have they have this like silent movie festival here in Bristol. Mm-hmm. And they'll usually weigh in on that because, of course, it's been a big influence on what they do. And uh, I think I've said before, like, probably my favorite Wallace and Gromit moment, if we were to sort of go back to, like, the wrong trousers, would be the um, the bank heist scene. You know what I mean? Was it? No, it wasn't a bank. It was a museum. The museum, yeah. yeah. I hadn't watched it in many years, and it was on probably one Christmas about five or six years ago. It's on every Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> And um, the bit I sort of tuned into was that whole segment, and there's, it's a long stretch where no one says anything. It's just Wallace snoring on a rather creepy loop while the penguin's controlling him. And that is a, a great example of just really effective comedy of, of without dialogue. And all the sort of stuff with Gromit, obviously. Um, mm. uh, just the expressiveness. It was weird, like, the things that I really loved as a kid. There's a point where... Right at the beginning of the episode, you see this um, Goldberg series of, of wacky contraptions that ditches Wallace out of bed, and he lands in his seat, and um, his toast pops out of the toaster right when the jam is sprung through the air, it lands yeah. on his plate. And then later on in the episode, they have this reprise of that scene where Gromit's accidentally in the bed, and he accidentally sets off the contraption, and he falls in, it's all like he's all the wrong way around, and then the jam gets sort of, you know, flung toward him. And it just cuts to the shot of Gromit, this weary look on his face because he knows he's about to get hit in the face with jam. This weary resignation of, ah, oh, f*** me. <laughs> <laughs> this is just a sh** day. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, obviously isn't communicated in those terms, but it's amazing how that exact emotion is conveyed in, like, probably four or five frames of moulded plasticine. Yeah, Like I say, going back to Sean the Sheep, that's probably the show that has most captured or most retained that type of storytelling, that type of humor. All these little you know, bits and pieces that come together to tell a story with nothing actually being said. I've watched the first two seasons, and I guess they're doing the third one now. It's being aired at the moment. Yeah. It is a skill, you know, silent comedy. Uh, there's a reason they still do it even though it harks back to the early early stage of cinema, it's because it's a skill. It comes back from the vaudeville and those kind of acts, Chaplin, Keaton. And it's a universally accepted form of comedy. It's not like dialogue comedy. It's Everyone loves it when somebody gets kicked up the arse or somebody falls down a, a flight of stairs or, yeah. you know, slapstick is an amazingly uh, powerful uh, comedic tool that speaks many languages. And it probably goes to show why something like Sean or the antics of Wallace and Gromit are so widely adored around the world. You know, I know Shaun the Sheep uh, in particular is huge in Japan, in Iran and uh, and other other territories. I guess it helps tremendously to 
you know, have a series without dialogue or a film without dialogue when it comes to getting it out to international territories. Yeah. It saves a bundle on, you know, um, ADR and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think when you're dealing with concepts more than dialogue, that tends to translate more. There are certain things about just the nature of body language that succeed on a more sort of universal level. Like, you know, you can have a very pithy remark made in a certain language, but if you don't speak that language, it's just noise. Whereas you can have a little, you know, tick of the face or, or nudge of the arm or body language tell, and that will say so many things and you don't need to speak the same language. It's just, it's an automatic understanding of what that person is trying to convey, demonstrate, and so on. Well, you have to ask the question, why are two grown men talking at such length about a children's TV show? Well, that's sort of actually what the whole podcast is <laughs> more or less about in some form or other. Yeah, uh, I've been asking myself for a year then. <laughs> I, uh, I got to chat with Richard Starzak, who's known as Golly, and he's been a big part of Ardman really since not day one, but perhaps day two. He wasn't quite there at, uh, at the kitchen table. But when they started sort of fleshing out the studios, he was one of the uh, one of the only other guys creating plasticine stop motion, really. So he, he got on board early with the guys, didn't he? Yeah. And from what I can tell, stuck with them for quite a long time. Went out and sort of did his own thing for a while and then came back, thankfully, because, you know, uh, a lot of the stuff that he did back in the day ranks amongst their best work, certainly their best sort of early work. The whole thing with Ardman is that, like, the real success stories of theirs are part of this landscape of there were quite a lot of films made that I'm not really sure how they'd hold up you know like I don't know I'm, I'm assuming you have quite a strong familiarity with Ardman mm. leafing through collections of their older work a lot of it you can tell is them sort of finding their way a bit and mm -hmm. um, like some of the conversation pieces where they would just take recorded audio and edit it and then animate it. I mean, some of those succeed to quite varying degrees. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would agree with you. It's, it's early days. It's a very ambitious group of animators wishing to contribute to the craft. And these guys were given money from Channel 4 to create something using audio. And initially, the first ones are conversation pieces. Uh, using snippets from radio, snippets from salesmen, snippets from, uh, I think one of them was from a some kind of homeless shelter. And that was quite a uh, harrowing scene, really. This guy, just after a meal, and the sort of the bureaucracy around it, and um, the way that they portrayed that. Hmm. I mean, interesting little snippets of reality. The radio DJ one, especially, they added a kind of Wallace and Gromit charm to them. And it shows him like being woken up out of bed and his breakfasts on the go, spinning around on the turntables and things like that. So there's, there's a great deal of charm, even in these early days, to the uh, these conversation pieces that Arvin were putting out. Then we start seeing the money put to different use. I mean, the uh, Lip Sync series saw the birth of Creature Comforts. You know, it's the same thing that funded Next by Barry Purvis. And our guest created a film called Ident, which didn't really use much dialogue, but he used a kind of a weird audio landscape and he animated that with quite a degree of skill i would say i think it's probably next to next it's probably <laughs> my favorite of that first crop i mean there were i i really like creature comforts obviously it's just a very charming i like the war one war story um mm. i don't know if that came later uh, or not 
I had an Aardman VHS, and I think it was probably all the lip-sync films, because that's mainly where my memory of Aardman short films came from, like the non-Wallace and Gromit Aardman stuff. Um, and that, to me, for a very long time, was all Aardman was, was this VHS tape and the Wallace and Gromit shorts. And then, you know, many moons later, I come back to animation and see what they've sort of done in the meantime, between, like, then and Chicken Run, say. The reason I liked Aiden so much then is it sort of sets up what makes a really, really good Aardman short, which is its unique vision of the director. Now, you could say the same for Next, it's a very Barry Purvis-looking film, but I didn't kind of look like nothing else. Very sort of compelling, very surreal, a little nightmarish to a very young kid, because none of it made any sense. Now, of course, if you watch it as an adult, it all makes perfect sense. But you have to have, you know, to watch it again, say, in my mid-twenties, having not seen it for probably nearly ten years. All of a sudden, it all kind of falls into place exactly what it is this guy is saying. I mean, there are some bits that are still a little muddy, but largely, you know, you've had the relationships where, you know, you, you're not on the same wavelength at all. You've maybe crossed a, a social line with a, a higher up in your job, been like a sort of social situation where you're consciously conforming to like the other people around you and that kind of thing. It's not impenetrably deep and it's not the, the horribly obtuse as an artsy film. It's very funny. It's very, like I say, very bizarre and, and unique. And I think that's what I like about recent Ardman short films are the ones that have that director stamp on them are the ones that kind of do something a little different visually mm. so you see people like peter peak he's done a couple of films for arben if you were to look at something like humdrum that doesn't look like anything arben had done at the time recently pythagosaurus which has come up a few times i mean that has this very particular inventive use of, of cg and compositing that's put together you look at will beecher as well couldn't you He's uh, offbeat. It's, it takes place in a, a, a different universe to the majority of everything else, but uh, it still has a, uh, a humorous Aardman charm to it as well, especially with the majority of it being a sort of silent film. Yeah. It shows encouragingly that they don't shy away from being a little adventurous, you know, and giving people a chance to kind of shine on their own terms. The more I think about it, the more sort of directors come to mind. Lewis Cook. Yeah. Uh, oh, I forget his name, actually, so his name didn't come to mind, but the guy who did uh, Blind Date. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, the one with the lighthouse. Yeah. Nigel Davis. Yeah, I mean, that was a film that looked almost like it was hearkening back to a sort of late 80s, early 90s traditional 2D style that, again, not particularly associated with Arben. A lot of people just assume it's the kind of the, the stop-motion clay studio. Yeah, very early in my sort of squiggly quote-unquote career i saw um peter lord give a talk at annecy and he said something along the lines of um i don't think Ardman has a style they only have a style in spirit which i think sums up nicely what we're trying to get across here mm. and the spirit which you know doesn't just come from peter lord doesn't just come from nick park you know it comes from guys like like golly mm -hmm. guys like will beecher guys like peter peak Darren Walsh, when he did work for them, all these, um, you know, great directors. So since returning to Arben and becoming way more a part of the operation as a whole again, he's been a part of the development of a couple of pre-existing properties, I suppose. He essentially sort of took charge of Creature Comforts when it was adapted into a TV show, which uh, went down very well at the time. Mm -hmm. I remember that was one of those shows that, like, everyone was really, really... They made a whole bunch of, like, TV commercials, didn't they? Yeah. About, like, gas and electric, yeah. Yeah, heat electric. Yeah. 
and those kind of really captured the vibe of the original short film you know in pretty much the exact same way it wasn't like Oh, you know what happens a lot with like really good short films is then that director gets picked up by an advertising agency and they just have the director make a bunch of adverts kind of in the style of their film and I gotta be honest with you a lot of the time that doesn't work mm-hmm. I mean I can think of very few examples where it's kind of translated but Creature Comforts was about Creature Comforts it was about life and environment and uh, housing that kind of thing so yeah that worked perfectly talking about, you know, electrical services and living comfortably. And it had the same, pretty much the same identical charm of the original short because it was, as far as I'm aware, executed in exactly the same way where they didn't script it, where they they had people just interviewed and they, you know, would would select the bits that would work effectively for the purposes of the commercial. Yeah, it certainly certainly seemed that way. And also the, the charm probably translated because, you know, some of the characters in the commercial which could quite easily have been a throwaway campaign, just a way to make money off of an incredibly successful uh, Oscar-winning film. You know, some of the characters in it really took on a life of their own and people wanted to see more of them. Like Frank the Tortoise, you know, this sort of tortoise um, with the uh, runner band around his head. I like the new, the sort of, they came up with a whole bunch of like new interpreted characters, I guess, from the new set of interviews for the TV show. And some of those were fantastic. They had a few of the, the models up at Encounters last year, and that was kind of nice to see. And I like, I think my favorite, it was a cat and a dog in the TV show. Yeah. But in real life, you could just tell it was this couple who were just miserable with each other. <laughs> the guy was this complete lethargic douche. <laughs> They're both, both too lazy to leave each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and she'd like she'd like try and fuck with him a little bit, and he wasn't having it at all. <laughs> it's that thing of like you know exactly what type of person is being dealt with, and how well the animal pet kind of suits the personality. Yeah, I think one was also like this kind of frenetic dog that was a bit manic, and you could tell that the woman who was doing the voice for that was sort of insufferable. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like someone you all kind of know, you know. The best one for terms of voice, was this loud, boisterous Geordie that was put in the body of a mouse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, shouting and, and, and ranting and raving, which I thought was in- incredible, uh, an incredible use. I mean, this may be the success. I mean, like, you recognise the characters in Ident. You know, you can, you can associate with the characters in Ident. You can associate with the characters in Creature Comforts. If you recognise yourself in something, then you instantly like it. You instantly... You're on board with the concept, and uh, you know it's a success. Was there a particular animal in Creature Comforts that you, Steve, related to? I don't know. No, I mean it was you recognised mm. certain individuals, certain characters that you maybe encounter on a day-to-day basis. I think perhaps it's easier to recognise other people, yeah, than who we are to other people. If you know what I mean. Yeah, I'd assume I'd be like the dung beetle. <laughs> but. Uh, a while ago, I went out with a girl from South America who liked the original short and identified very closely with the um, Brazilian jaguar, especially the way he would talk about how England was just such a shitty place to live, <laughs> how it's always cold, and how we can't get a good steak. Yeah. And she was just like, yeah, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> I read somewhere that that was originally going to be a penguin. Okay. That it wasn't always going to be this jaguar, but then he listened to him talking about meat. Hmm. It would have been funny as a penguin, but it really works as a... As a a Jaguar. So as well as Creature Comforts, he now, of course, is part of Shaun the Sheep, the show that began this discussion. 
Mm. Conveniently, it's almost like we planned it out. <laughs> it seemed like it was sort of out of commission for a while, and it's back now. There's a third season currently being aired. The first two seasons are out on DVD. And uh, as discussed in the interview, which we'll go into in a second, they're now making their fourth. It's interesting to hear about how the source of funds is different now, how it sort of follows on from the initial reception, perhaps, of the first season or the first couple of seasons. And, um, you know, it's been an interesting time in terms of uh, securing finances for TV shows and movies and the like. So it's kind of an interesting case study of... Um, how a show can carry on and how a show can sort of be preserved and uh, here's hoping it carries on for a good long while so why don't we hear from Richard Starzak aka Golly creative director of Shaun the Sheep as well as numerous other Ardman projects past and presumably future so I guess your relationship with Ardman from what I gather it goes back to the 80s is that right? yeah very early um, sort of I think 83, 84 just when I left college so what was the sort of path that led you to animation and ultimately them? Well, I loved um, cartoons as a kid and our diet of cartoons was very small and therefore very precious, I think. So as a kid, I had a friend that liked um, particularly the Roadrunner cartoons. We used to sort of disseminate the comedy afterwards and, and the timing. We used to sort of uh, relive the moments, if you like. You know, how long did it take Roadrunner to fall off a cliff and hit the ground? <laughs> You know, all that timing, we kind of um, made us laugh, you know. And uh, so I like cartoons a lot. I did a fine art course, but actually my work always had a bit of humour in it. Whether it's painting or sculpture, I always liked to add a bit of humour, which which didn't sit comfortably in a fine art course because it was it's considered uh, not very good art if it was funny. So I spent a lot of my time in this department that was called 4D at Exeter Art College, where we had time-based things. We had video cameras and film cameras. And one of the few bits of kit that worked was a 16mm movie camera that you could animate on. I thought this is a great opportunity to do what I've always wanted to do. So um never thought it was I was going to do animation, but I ended up doing it anyway kind of thing. But it was all quite surreal at college. It was like moving shop dummies around and food around the plate. And I loved all that. I suppose after I left college, I, I tried to get work in animation, but it was really tiny cottage industry, even in... Soho in London, the companies were tiny. I suppose I was just one of those lucky people that I kind of came into Ardman just at the right time when Channel 4 had been formed that it wasn't broadcasting yet. And they were commissioning work and they'd seen Ardman's, some of Ardman's short films and they commissioned five films. I just happened to walk into the company when they were making those and they needed help. They, there's only two people, Peter Lord and Dave Sproxton. Mick Park was still at film school. I was just at the right, there at the right time and I could, help them out building sets, making sandwiches, doing bits of animation, everything really. Cool. Do you remember which films those were? Yeah, they were called, I think they're called uh, Animated Conversations or Conversation Pieces for Channel 4. And they're all directed by Pete and Dave. And they were all Vox Pop films. They're all in the same ilk as uh, Creature Comforts, but they predated that. And they were, they were, you know, all voice recorded films. I think I know the ones you mean. There was a sort of like natural conversations that were then kind of yeah set to claymation that's right yeah yeah were those set up to have been made into films do you know if the people who were having the conversations were they aware of that because something i'm sort of interested in as far as like how something like creature comforts came together as okay. a short and then later on as a series is how aware the people may have been 
as far as um, uh, if they knew what kind of a film it was going to be? I think, um, interestingly, when you, and I found this out right through to the, the last series of Creature Comforts we did, is that people start off being very self-conscious that they're being recorded and they very quickly forget it. So in the early days, one of the short films we were making was set, set in a local magazine office and we mic'd a few people up and just recorded their conversations and occasionally they'd go, oh, I can't say that because I'm being recorded. But most of the time they'd forget it. So the interactions were very natural, very hard to reproduce. It's very hard to get that kind of thing with actors and quite unique. And right through to the last series of Creature Comforts I worked on, you'd have a couple of people on a sofa and you'd switch on the machine, they'd be very self-conscious. But within about 10 minutes, it was just a conversation. If the interviewer is good and the interviewees kind of respond to that, it just becomes a conversation. They kind of forget being recorded. And then, you, of course, there's a lot of editing to remove yeah. profanities and mistakes. So how long were you... Um in that kind of role at Ardman before Ident came along? Oh, um, probably about two years. We got commissioned again to make another five films, one of which was turned out to be Creature Comforts. There was Ident, there was a film called Next by Barry Purvis, and uh, the interesting thing was we couldn't think of a theme. We'd been actually commissioned to make the films without Channel 4 having any input on what we were going to make. They, they liked our work and they were happy for us to make five short films, which is kind of unheard of uh, these days. But we couldn't think of a theme and um, I think Pete and Dave were quite keen to not make Fox Pop films. Uh, this is how I remember anyway. That They wanted to do something different and they had a theme of like, uh, it was going to be men or some kind of theme about masculinity and all sorts of weird ideas were flying around. So I kind of slightly went off on my own tangent and then I think both Nick and Pete Lord came back to making Vox Pop films, which I found mildly annoying because that's what I wanted to do, but I, I was told I couldn't. And Creature Comforts were one of one of those, and it was that was kind of groundbreaking because Ardman had already made like uh, ten Vox Pop films, but Nick's was the first to subvert the medium. I think he kind of found a way of making it into something different. The, the ten preceding films had kind of been almost like illustrative of the conversations; they didn't subvert them in any way, but Nick turn people talking about their living conditions into animals in the zoo and it seemed to add a, another layer even though it's funny it's quite poignant as well and um, and unique were there particular sort of circumstances or inspirations behind ident was it a personal film or was it something that was sort of in a, in a way it's kind of um it's uncomfortable viewing for me because i don't think it's a particularly good film and it i think i threw in everything plus the kitchen sink into it like as many you get so few opportunities to make a short film that you end up like throwing every idea you've ever had into it. And uh, I should have, uh, well, it is what it is, but I think I was trying to make a kind of, um, in a way, a slightly punky film. I wanted to popularise a more kind of weird-looking animation, so hence the juxtaposition of very surreal-looking characters, but the conversation they're having is very sort of Cockney in London. So I was a punk originally, you see. Uh-huh. I found that it was one of those films that, as a kid, it was one of those very engaging, odd visual ideas and sort of claustrophobic. Then when you watch them as an adult, it's like, oh, okay, that's what that was. It's quite nice in that respect that it does have that kind of two states, perhaps, the pre-adolescent looking at it and then the kind of, you know, watching it and seeing it for the, the metaphors and analogies and that kind of thing. And um, I, mean, I find it interesting that you say it's it's hard to look at in some respects. I mean, I guess everyone's sort of earlier work, perhaps, there's always going to be a little bit of that. I guess, um, did Rex the Runt kind of spring from that? 
Or did that character... Yeah, Rex was uh, made a cameo role in... Um, I say he made a cameo role. I just had a little dog in, in the Ident film. I just like the idea that he was flat and then he had a face on both sides because uh, I think it's probably a reference to sort of UPA cartoons where characters are flat and they turn around and they're the same on the other side, but back to front. I quite liked the character. Everyone said they liked the dog, so I thought I'd... Um, again, it was a sort of punky idea. It, it, I wanted to make a series that was undesigned and looked childlike, or make a short film rather, but the content was quite grown-up and adult without being adult as in pornographic or rude. It was just a grown-up cartoon but looked young. And again, it was. I, I think I was really lucky in the, the animation unit the BBC was around at the time, and they were happy to sort of say go ahead, you know, and, you know, I'm working on um, Shaun the Sheep nowadays and there's so much uh, back and forth with scripts and storyboards and everything's checked and double-checked. They're really on top of you, whereas in the early days we were given quite a free reign. It was like an outpouring of ideas that I'd always had. I found a format that I could release them all. It was it was very exciting and, uh, you know, looking back on it, it's all quite... I was too in love with dialogue. I, I quite I, lo I love slapstick and I... I, I Never found the, quite the room for it because I wanted them to say so much, but uh, it was fun just to sort of blurt ideas out and make people in the studio laugh. And uh, Ardman's best work has always been, that includes Morph and Creature Comforts and everything, is when we amuse ourselves, I think that's when we make our best work rather than thinking of an audience. If we kind of make our peers laugh, and uh, mm -hmm. that's when it works well. The point you made about like dialogue along with slapstick is that is one an easier approach than the other if you were to compare say something like sean which is quite physical comedy heavy yeah. as opposed yeah. to creature comforts where i i would expect pretty much all the animation and the body movement is dependent on the delivery of of these conversations are they their own universes or is one sort of a smoother process than the other they are their own universe. interesting though i wasn't aware of this at the time but when we did creature comforts I learned a lot about performance and acting, and I, I tuned into this thing about eye accessing cues. It's like where your eyes are, what your eyes do when they're accessing information. So if you're if you're recalling stuff, uh, visual stuff, you tend to look up to the left or the right, depending on whether it's a created image or a thought of image. And conceptual stuff, you look down to the left and right. If you're uncomfortable, you look to the side. And if you're trying to convince somebody, you look straight in their eyes. You know, it's all little acting tips that we picked up, performance tips. We never recorded visually anything for Creature Comforts of the people talking. It was just the voice, and we responded to the voice. So sometimes we'd subvert it. If somebody says something, we'd try to make it look like they were lying. Lots of those tricks. And that was all great. And when I moved on to Sean, the original reason we didn't have any dialogue in Sean was we thought it'd make the animation easier. And because dialogue in stop frame is incredibly time-consuming and expensive, to do. so thought we'll eliminate dialogue. But what that did was make the storytelling very pure, and like silent comedy, and like uh, cinema, it had to be very cinematic. We had to tell a story in images, and we had to go back. and I learned a lot about how you tell a story purely in images. I think that's Nick Park's strength. If you watch Nick Park's early films, uh, his short Wallace and Gromit films, if you turn the dialogue down, you still know what's going on because he thinks in images before he thinks in dialogue. Yeah. The irony was that it actually made it quite difficult to shoot because we had to keep moving the camera around. We couldn't do like a Bob the Builder where they go, right, we're coming over here to fix Mrs. So-and-so's house. Can't do any of that. You have to really uh, think about how you're telling the story and make sure that the audience are with, with you or behind you. And um, so there are very two different aspects of 
filmmaking. It's great to learn them both, but yeah, they're very separate things. I love Sean. I love uh, the script writing for Sean because uh, it's very satisfying on a script writing and boarding stage to to tell a story and make people laugh without any words. I mean, they make noises, obviously. Is the approach to to writing a script for a Sean the Sheep episode, say, does that start just all written down, or is it kind of written and boarded as it goes, given that it's so sort of visual-based? Well, it starts, we've got, a, we've got a small trusted team of writers that freelance, plus people within the company that got good story bones. And it always starts off with an idea, what if this happened? And then we brainstorm it within the room with maybe storyboard artists, the, the proposed directors who are, have been animators as well. So we flesh out an idea to find out what the story's about and the writer will take it away and develop it further. And it's, it's written down as, um, as beats. So we have all shots almost. So it's almost like a treatment. It's just a, it's just an ex- explanation of what's going on. It can be quite dry to read. It's not an easy read. <laughs> it's an easy read if it works well, by the way. It's it's a very dry kind of document. And we leave enough space for that to breathe with the storyboard artists so they get like a five and a half minute idea and they've got space to flesh it out. And then we work on the board to and we refine that and that goes through a number of loops to, to get it working. Mm-hmm. And when that's okay, then we're okay to stick it in the production machine and know that it will work. You know, but that's the stage. The end of the animatic is when we trust that it's going to be funny and all the jokes work, the timings work. But all the way through that process, we've got checks and measures from the BBC and WDR, who are in Germany, who are our main funders, to make sure everything's okay. There's funny little things happen, like we had a pig with a chainsaw in series one, and. We were a bit worried that the BBC wouldn't like that, but they said it's okay as long as wearing protective gloves <laughs> and a helmet, you know, and um, funny things like that. Fair enough. Yeah, I did notice that in, in Germany it, it seems to be massive. Yeah. So is that, were WDR always invested in it, or did that sort of come after the success? They bought the first series. They weren't. They didn't fund the first series, but they bought it. And yeah, they've they've been huge supporters. And uh, I didn't realise, but Germans have a huge history of slapstick. You know, goes back to the early days of cinema, and so they love it. And I think for a long while, a lot of Germans did think it was a German show. Right, showing it's a compliment. Again, it's this fantastic thing. It's it, it's they show it within another show called Strangely, the show about the mouse. It's called. It's like a cross between Blue Peter and Sesame Street, and it's been running for. It's it's um it's like a national treasure for them. It's it's been running for forty years. Parents watch it with their kids, and it's on just before the news, and uh, and that that's made Sean very popular over there. Excellent. Yeah, so uh, that's it's really good for us, and they're they're great supporters, and I get the most amazing letters from German fans. It fits with their sense of humour because a lot of our humour and stand-up humour is to do with wordplay or misunderstandings of words you know but they don't have any misunderstandings with their words because they have compound nouns so their language is very precise so their comedy is more to do with wit and slapstick so it fits in with their their needs I suppose Excellent. Do you find that with sort of other territories like other sort of clashes can arise because I I think I remember did they do an American Creature Comforts at one point? Yeah. Was that, were you involved with that as? Yes. Yeah. We produced it. We had an American director and American voices. I was partly, I kind of went over a couple of times to give them some tips. And, um, there, I think there are a few reasons why it didn't work, but oh, it, I mean, it did work. It's okay. Uh, but it, it didn't, it was taken off 
we made seven episodes, and I think they only showed three of them before they took it off. Right. Fox. And the thing was, if you record British people, they tend to, there's usually a great subtext, you know, if people say, yeah, I mustn't grumble. Yeah, everything's fine. And you, you sense that it isn't, you know, and you can grab hold of that in the animation. Whereas Americans tend to say exactly what they mean. They're much more, they wear their heart on their sleeves. They're much more open and honest. So it's harder to find that interesting material because, uh, it's harder to find something to latch onto, to subvert or change or, or highlight. So it was a harder task and it was harder to make. Maybe they wanted longer episodes as well. And I don't know if it sustains that well for 22 minutes. Well, it's quite hard to watch the talking heads for 22 minutes. Yeah. Cause the English ones were about half the length, weren't they? Yeah. They were, they were 10 minutes. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that uh, you're working on the fourth season. Is that right? Yes, it's, it's a bit confusing as we did two seasons of 40 episodes and then we did a 20, which was considered third season, and now we do another 20, which is the fourth, I suppose, yeah. Okay, cool. Because it seemed like, I guess it went back to, what, 2005, 2006, did it start? or? Well, for me, 2004, I think, yeah, because it, it was quite a while in development because it wasn't working for a long time. Do you find that it's currently being produced at a quicker rate perhaps now or has anything as far as the the changing climate sort of slowed things down well there's less money for each series so we have to be more ingenious with the way we spend it and uh it's been fairly quick to shoot relative to everything else we do we can do about um up to six seconds a day per animator right creature comforts might be three or four wallace and gromit is one or two so relative to what we do it's quite quick to shoot but it still makes it very expensive as you might imagine so every series we try and find ways of keeping the quality but making life easier and it's all in the detail is we just develop methods of being able to change the mouths over more quickly but still keep them as plasticine and the pigs i love the pigs but they're such a pain in the ass to animate because <laughs> they you can't get away with sort of silicon or rubber pigs they have to be plasticine because their limbs move around and mm. what you want them to do so we might not use them as much in the full body, but it's more as kind of neighbours looking over the wall. Um, and, yeah, we just have to find ways of making it work and still still be funny. Cool. Well, best of luck with the uh, new series, and um, it's been Thanks. a real pleasure to talk to you. You're welcome. You too. So that was Ben talking to Richard Golly Starzak, talking there about Ardman, Sean the Sheep, past, present, and future. Yeah, I like... Um, I like... Timmy time, but not the, I mean, the show's great. Um, maybe not for my age, but the fact that it's a spin-off from a spin-off. Uh-huh. And it's still incredibly successful. They're development machines. I do remember one of the original episodes or one of the early episodes of Shaun the Sheep where it was a Timmy-centric episode and it was about him losing his teddy bear. And that was mm. very sad, Stephen. I felt. Really? I felt for the poor scamp. Well, I'm sorry to be bringing up these horrible memories, Ben. I should think before I speak in future. Well. I didn't think. Sorry. Frankly, Stephen, you were right to apologize. So, <laughs> check out the current season of Shaun the Sheep weekdays on CBBS or the CBBS iPlayer. We started this podcast last year with talk about the UK animation tax credits. And uh, it seems quite apt that we've sort of come full circle. Uh, we've got a lovely article on the site, crafted 
uh, by Mr. Aaron Wood, and it's titled Updates on the UK Tax Credit for Animation. Basically, Harbottle and Lewis have managed to, uh, to give us their report on the UK tax credit. So now we know what, what will happen, what benefits people will get from this, this tax relief, this animation tax relief. I'm not going to go through all, all the ins and outs of it, but uh, if you take your way through to, uh, to Squiggly and, and have a look for Aaron's article, um, you'll be able to find out a little bit more about the tax relief that will come into effect in April 2013. Uh, so yes, maybe, maybe there's hope for, for some animators animation may be a little bit easier in the uk Mm -hmm. although i would stress it sort of depends on uh uh, who you end up working for Mm. steve something you may have picked up on in recent correspondence uh well up until sort of mid-february was that um i had sort of become what my uh my dear old nan would affectionately refer to as a miserable sack of um (laughs) There was a certain um, <laughs> sacky and shitty vibe coming from you, Ben. I think that part of the reason I was so ill was was stress, really messing with my immune system. And, uh, you know, I've been having some conversations with people who have had, you know, bad work experiences. And um, sometimes it's good. It sort of puts some things in perspective. I fell into... One of the most like disrespectful, amateurish, wretched commissions of my freelance career, such as it is, it's been about six years now, and um, not all of them have been brilliant jobs, but uh, wow, did this <laughs> completely reset the playing field. Everything from this point on for a long time is going to be golden. <laughs> the worst kind of things that sort of happen when you deal with animation studios can be when clients, perhaps... Uh, insist on a sort of hierarchical uh, line of communication. So you're only really answerable to your immediate you know, boss at the studio. And then they have to deal with uh, the people who aren't necessarily involved in the world of animation and don't really know how they make these moving pictures come to life. And um, the absolute worst person to commission animation is someone who knows a little bit about it. <laughs> like with so many things in life, Stephen, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Mm. I was brought on board to put together... A, now, I'm not, I, I kind of can't talk about the specifics. Well, I don't know. Technically, I could because the punchline is they had no intention of honoring the contract. So anything that was in the contract about me being discreet about it is pretty much voided. However, out of my embarrassment, I don't want to reveal too many of the details, but... You get, go to an interview, it goes well, you ha- think you have a job that's going to carry on for a while, and then gradually over time, the cracks start to show, and uh, uh, the cold sweat starts to come, and that feeling of being trapped in a room where the walls are closing in uh, for about a month straight. I think the main sort of issue with um, dealing with these types of people, you, there's no way to communicate anything and have them hear it. It simply doesn't enter their brain. It, go, it goes into their ear and then just kind of evaporates. It doesn't even go out the other ear. Mm-hmm. I know, have you had like bad experiences working on film projects or TV projects or? I understand where you're coming from for the idea that somebody who knows a little bit about animation. I've dealt with people like that who know a little bit about animation. And, and, and you, there tends to be a sort of familiar you know, oh, can't you just do this? Oh, can't you just do that? They don't realise the mechanics of it. You know, you sign things off as you as you work, 
and then they'll change the mind at the very end. <laughs> exactly. After yeah. it's been signed off. After it's yeah. been... It's usually major. It's usually like, well, can't you make that boy a girl? It's like, well, no, I've just animated him for five... I've just done five minutes worth of animation for him. Well, can't you just stick a bow in his hair and, and, and put a dress on instead of trousers? Do you realise how long it took to animate them legs? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, obviously, say a software company is trying to represent their product in a way that will have it sell. They will big up its virtues, all the ways the production pipeline flow will be eased. Things are made more convenient. So if someone is, quote unquote, researching how animation is made, and they look up a software package that's associated with TV animation, and they want to make a pilot, say, for a TV show, they'll look at the software demos, completely misinterpret them, and then just decide in their heads that they know enough about the ins and outs of it. Here are a couple of examples. One being that computers do all the lip sync for you now. Huh. Wow. I mean, I do know what that's in reference to, and there are some pretty impressive things with auto lip sync, but honestly, the results you get don't really approximate doing lip sync properly, and it's completely useless if you're using full animation. Yeah. Uh, another one was you just need to draw one version of the background, and then the computer works out how to have it be shot from any angle you want. That's reasonable enough. <laughs> Holy shit, Stephen. <laughs> and every time I say, okay, well, that's, uh, you know, not quite how it works. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, and you just sort of wave off all the kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know things I was, I was bringing up that were kind of crucial. Um, if you had a comic, you wouldn't be able to tilt the comic and see around the edge of, <laughs> of the box. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's it's like, why if I lift the lid off the TV and I reach in, I can't pluck out the characters in the show? It's that kind of mentality. And these are grown men. You know what mm. I mean? The truly alarming thing was the complete lack of research into how it's budgeted. Now, I would generously call what they had an adult swim budget, and they wanted a Disney movie. Now, that is a lament I'm sure many animators are familiar with. Yeah. But I went to see a cartoon on the weekend called uh, Brave, and this looks nothing like this. This is, well, eh, you know. Yeah, they have a million dollars a minute. <laughs> you know what? I actually did refer to this back when it started, when there was a little bit of hope. The two of the people involved were sort of at odds. One of them wanted it to be like Family Guy, and we know how well that goes when <laughs> someone tries to make a TV show that's exactly the same as something that already exists, especially something that's, you know, already kind of tired. And the other person didn't and was quite enthusiastic that it'd be more upmarket. Now, obviously, my impulse is to kind of side with the latter. It's like, well, yeah, you could do something a little more sophisticated if it's planned out right, if there's you know, the funds there and if there's enough organization. So they're asking me to show them like footage, like example footage of things that would be achievable or like what a sort of gamut would be. So on one end, it's stuff like, you know, 2D TV, Adult Swim shows, that kind of thing. And the style they wanted was this very dated, like, you know, anatomically proportionate comic book style almost. I mean, that was what they ended up going with, kind of like an 80s Saturday morning cartoon. So A, that's incredibly time-consuming to animate, so all the animation would have to be incredibly stilted given the turnaround time and the budget. And B, it's so ugly that, you know, it's nothing I can really put in my reel or my portfolio, you know, it's, it's cringy. So then I'm showing them, like, footage from other films, and at one point the guy goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's perfect. That's exactly what I want this film to look like. I'm like, okay. This is a film called Chico and Rita, and you have a fraction 
of a percent of that budget. So <laughs> you may need to let that dream die like early on. And this is all in the first interview, by the way. So I leave this having gotten the job feeling like the air has been cleared. And I guess their way of resolving these these conflicts was to just forget everything that was brought up whatsoever. Because <laughs> that's helpful. Um, the guy who hired me seemed a little more with it. And then um, all of a sudden stopped replying to emails. Because I put together a production plan. I put together something that will break down the costs, that will uh, you know put effectively have what they want, which is a pretty large chunk of animation done in less than two months. But, uh, you know, there is a way. And then all of a sudden, I just stopped hearing from him. And I'm just carrying on working because I haven't been told to stop. One of the other people gets back in touch with me, tells me that they've rewritten the script. So now there's like three weeks to put together the same amount of animation. I'm like, okay, wow. given that, uh, you know, with if starting, you know, pre-production from scratch, there's going to be huge concessions to the amount of time that was originally devoted to animation. So it's not going to look like what we'd originally planned. Are you okay with me to proceed? Oh yeah, of course. I understand completely. We'll just, we, we can imagine it, you know, so, okay, well, that's, that's good. I appreciate your understanding. Um, I then get an email roughly around the same time from the writer who was the guy who hired me, who was the guy who, who stopped getting back to me, saying, yeah, I'm sorry that uh, the project was dropped. Uh, I hope you have a good 2013 kind of thing, like a solidarity email. Like, huh, interesting development. <laughs> so I get back in touch with the, the person who, as far as I'm aware, is I'm still working for. I was like, yeah, whatever happened to such and such? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, uh, he's not with the company anymore. So something happened where... Either he's f***ing with me, or they're f***ing with me, but essentially they had to rewrite the script without him being involved in it. And um, it was not a good script to begin with. This new script was like a f***ing child wrote it. Yeah. Someone who was not even a teenager in their sort of pre-adolescence. It was so disjointed and lamentable and and bizarre and a little bit like offensive, but in none of the fun ways. You know mm. what I mean? You know, when there were very specific references to, like, local businesses, which, you know, if it had gone through, could have very easily led to defamation lawsuits. Mm. Personally, to me, what bugged me the most was this really, like, ugly streak of genuine misogyny that um, I was very ill at ease with. You know, you know the intent of Seth MacFarlane and Trey and Matt when they do their shows and they have the racist or sexist character or whatever. You can tell they're not actually racist or sexist the character's meant to be, and so the character looks like a fool. It's as if Alf Garnet, the character, were to write Till Death Us Do Part. You know, it would completely change the tone and the intent of the humor, and it would make it unpleasant. That was basically the vibe of this script. More to the point, it made no sense. The story was completely all over the place. They would sort of pat themselves on the back for what they thought was intellectual humor. It was just kind of horrendously embarrassing. So with that comes this ridiculous degree of stress. Hence why you were so ill. I think so. Well, I, I, I got a cold, but then it, it, it snowballed into something way worse than it sort of should have been. And there was just these like little sort of tells that, you know, contracts weren't signed on time. I was told that stuff wasn't received by one person. And then I was told by another person that they were collusion to kind of keep me out of the loop of certain things. Oh, my favorite bit. They didn't record the fucking dialogue. <laughs> which needed to be delivered by a certain date so I could animate the fucking thing. 
of the little of the little they knew about animation. That's probably a big key thing that you do need to know if you want your characters to speak. <laughs> Honestly, it was the one shitting thing they had to do. Yeah, and I, I get in touch with them like two days before the the sort of delivery date of this audio, as agreed on in the contract. I'm like, say. When about is this? Am I going to get this? Is it you know? Because I really do need it by this date. Is it? Oh yeah, you can probably help me with that. What's who? Who should I talk to about getting people to do voices for cartoons? <laughs> huh? You know? Because I sent an email to uh, to I won't say the the city, but the local university. And I haven't heard back from them. So what what would be a good alternative? Like. So you haven't recorded the dialogue? It's like, oh no, not yet. But we'll do it probably, you know, tomorrow or the day after. Like, wow. But you haven't gotten in touch with anyone yet. You haven't sent anyone scripts. Do you have a recording studio? No, I'll look it up on Google. You know, it's like, holy shit! <laughs> so this is the sort of person that sort of sends an email to a university and thinks, right, what's this? Half past two. I'll have the rest of the day off. It would be funny if it hadn't actually happened exactly that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so to resolve the, the lack of a dialogue track, okay, the only way I can sort of, like, and I, I says, well, why don't you just do the animation first and then we'll add the, the voices? I'm like... Oh, my God. Oh, uh, to my sheer embarrassment, I had two friends of mine record dialogue for what essentially at this point has to be a, a color animatic because there's so many elements of the full animation that can't be done because there's no dialogue so you can't dope anything out so I figure okay if I have dialogue roughly in place I can set up each shot that will be timed more or less the way it will need to be timed and then I can have rough key poses laid out that will probably need to be changed anyway to fit the actual dialogue record so I have my friends very unenthusiastically reading this dialogue. It's a very bizarre, surreal end product. But they, they, they're pretty lucky. I mean, the guys that you're working with, that you do have the recording facilities and you do have the willing friends. You know, these guys seem to be going off an awful lot of luck in order to get this, this product done. Yes, and you would think that they would be appreciative, wouldn't you? Um, yes, I would. <laughs> wow, did that not happen? <laughs> The thing that I think kind of hammered at home the most, that I was beholden to literal f***ing amateurs, was little sort of lines in the script of like, and at this point, this song plays. Like, okay. And they would name a song in a band. It would be cruel to say they'd be this ridiculous, but let's say there was a shot of like, a stairway going up to heaven. Now let's say you were the most unoriginal dimwit in the world. What song would you have accompany that visual, Stephen? A stairway going up into heaven. It's a head scratcher, ain't it? It's it's gotta be highway to hell. <laughs> no, no, uh, I yeah yeah. The, the, here's the thing, Steve. What you suggested incorporated some element of actual fucking humour. <laughs> People can't see that you're waving your arms around in a kind of in an actual rage. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Have you looked into how much? Let's say it was Stairway to Heaven. Have you looked into how much Stairway to Heaven actually costs? Like, what do you mean? What do you mean, what do I mean? Licensing costs. What is that? What's that? Well, if you want to distribute the film, you you need to pay for music if they're actual songs. You could get someone to do a sound alike, maybe. But uh, you can't actually have the actual song 
play without paying, you know, probably quite a lot of money, given that it's one of the most famous songs ever! <laughs> on and on this shit goes. Uh, nearly two months. I've never been more relieved to be relieved of a, you know, <laughs> of a project. Uh, you know, when, when I got told, you know, okay, we're not going to carry on with this. Usually that's bad news. Then it got shitty because of, of payment issues and stuff like that. But yeah. we found a compromise that we were sort of happy with. I wasn't over the moon about it, but it was something that I could walk away from. But it's like a, it's the strangest business tactic I've ever seen to make yourselves so unimpressive as professionals and as men, Stephen, as men, <laughs> that a person will accept a stipend to just never have to deal with you again. Now, it's probably not a business tactic you or I would ever employ because we have dignity and self-regard. Mm. <laughs> not an issue with these people. <laughs> oh, here's a little like supplemental thing. When I finally invoiced them for what they figured was way too much, even though it was the figure agreed upon in the fucking contract, the individual in charge of the invoicing. <laughs> I think I told you this part, didn't I? Go on. <laughs> for the benefit of our lovely audience. She won't process my invoice and she won't respond to my emails. I call and I say, what's going on? It's like, well, I can't process your invoice. You know, this isn't a proper invoice. There's no VAT information. How am I supposed to process this? Like, <laughs> what, what do you mean, young lady? That doesn't really apply to this situation. It's like, I'm not registered for VAT. And then she gets shitty with me. She's like, you're not registered. Like, it's like when someone thinks you've delivered them a nugget of gold that they can use as a sort of higher ground thing. It's like, let me get this straight in that, in that tone. You've been working for us for over a month and all this time you weren't VAT registered. Why is that exactly? I was like, well, I'm an individual who makes less than 80,000 pounds a year. And that's kind of what needs to happen to register for VAT. Woman who works in accounts? <laughs> that was one of the more civil discourses mm -hmm. in the latter stages of this project. You know what? Maybe one day they'll find another animator who's a better creative fit and they'll produce the wonderful film that they envision in their head and it will win all the awards. But uh, I somehow don't see it happening. Now, here's the, the pisser of it all. There was potential in this. As someone who was directed you know little auteur films but also been involved in more like what some people would consider legitimate productions i do know at this point enough about like how you can approach distribution and how you can develop a script they hadn't looked into anything about how they would actually distribute it how they would actually try and get it to markets try and get it to festivals i'm like well what's your what's your plan are you, do you have networks lined up is there any funding body behind it it's like well no we just figured we'd make it um with our own money and then um, we'll print off about, uh, I don't know, 5,000 DVDs and then put it through people's mailboxes. I'm like, well, I'm not sure if like studios are that wild about unsolicited materials and I'm not really sure how they'd be able to help you. They'd probably need to be on board right at the beginning of the development of the project. So, well, no, not studios, just people around town. It's not going to do much for the, the Nielsen box, is it? <laughs> this is the point where I start looking around, waiting for fucking Ashton Kutcher to pop out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Try to see if one of them's got a little hand, if it's Jeremy Beadle. <laughs> <laughs> this can't really be happening. Mm. Anyway. The thought occurs, 
because this has been this was probably the nadia of a, a career that is still kind of in its its early stages frankly I'm, i've been doing this for less than 10 years a really bad one was bound to come along sooner or later and it does like i said before it does put the ones that were bad before completely in the dust I'm sure people out there, because I know we have a lot of freelancers and a lot of directors who listen to the podcast, people who have had to deal with clients who just don't know what the hell is going on, just don't know anything about how animation works, how to you know do any kind of production management. And that is usually taken care of by the animation studio. So that's not really who I'm talking about. If you like, worked at a studio and you had a bad time, that's not really what I'm, I mean. It's the kind of the desperation of two parties completely at loggerheads because, you know, one just simply can't grasp what the other's trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. I suspect there'd be quite a few people who have stories of their own of these kind of nightmare scenarios. Well, we hear them. We, we, we hear the stories, don't we? I mm-hmm. mean, it's often talked amongst, you know, individuals such as ourselves that, that you know, the stories, they're a great source of entertainment. Mm-hmm. I mean, Blind me, Ben. Settle down. Your face has gone red. You know, <laughs> you can sit down in your chair again. They're not here. The monster's gone. <laughs> Calm down. You know, it's, it's good therapy to get it off the chest. I'd be extremely interested in, in hearing some uh, stories from, from other people. It's something that we can all share and enjoy, and it's something that we all have in common as well. So, yeah. So if anyone out there has any sort of similar nightmare stories... Because I'm sure a lot of people, you know, there is a sort of schadenfreude thing of, of you know, other people's misfortune that everyone can enjoy... Uh, but I think it's also a kind of solidarity thing. You know, this industry is not always that kind to everyone, be they individuals or studios or whatever kind of rung you are. I mean, I know people who have worked in the industry for decades that still get crapped on from time to time. And I'm sure there are stories far more interesting than that rant I just went on. But yeah, do get in touch. Uh, just send me an email at uh, ben at squiggly.co.uk. Alternatively, we could implement some modern technology Stephen, why don't you tell the lovely listeners how they can get in touch? You can get in touch for anything, really. If you want to give us a ring and leave us a voicemail, 0117-230-0037. But please make sure that you tell us if you wish to remain anonymous. We will be heavily disguising the voices if you do leave us a voicemail. Uh, Maybe if you want to get in touch on Facebook as well. Or... Good old Twitter. If you've had a an experience and it can be condensed into 140 characters or less, then obviously we want to hear from you. Get in touch at Twitter, at Squiggly. Give us a ring. Send Ben an email, ben at squiggly.co.uk. You know, let's let's all let's all share in our own misfortune. <laughs> and also, I would stress, don't view it as some kind of vengeance type thing to kind of get. Don't be d- dumb about it. Don't use actual names or, or try and use it as a way to kind of defame companies or studios you've worked for that you just felt kind of jerked you around a little bit. It's more about the sort of universal ludicrousness of, of it's a service we provide to people who need the service sometimes, and yet these people simply don't know what's up. And, uh, you know, it's not just limited to animation, of course. People who work in design, illustration, any kind of creative field, advertising, blah de blah de blah you know, they all are kind of familiar with that sort of general public mentality of draw a picture of it and it'll magically come to life. Yeah. So, yes, I'm interested. I'm interested as well. And if you'd like your voice disguised, if you leave a voice message, make sure to, to, to let us know. Otherwise, we'll assume it's not stuff that necessarily needs to be anonymous. If you're confident it's not the kind of thing that would bite you in the ass later on down the road, otherwise might be a, a good idea to play it safe. So a while back, you had a chat with Daniel Greaves of Tandem Films. That's right, yes. Prominent production house. 
lots of stuff I'm sure everyone would recognize. They're at tandemfilms.com. He's one of their directors. Is he sort of the head honcho over there? Yeah, it's the uh, uh, co-founder himself and uh, Nigel Pay, co-founded in 1986, I believe. He goes into a little bit about the, the history of Tandem in the interview. The guy won an Oscar in, in like 1991, I believe. And he's, you know, he's a guy who's, who's quite happy to, you know, sit behind the scenes and just get on with producing adverts and all the other content that comes out of, of Tandem. He's not the kind of guy that would show up to a dinner party with the Oscar under his arm. And just, you know, find any excuse whatsoever to bring it up. No, no, it, it, that's the kind of fella I would be if I won an Oscar. I'd wear it around my neck. Yeah. <laughs> and attach it to him. <laughs> what, what, this? This thing here? <laughs> no, he's, he's not like that at all. He's, he's an incredibly uh, modest guy, which is sort of hard to believe when you when you look at some of his films. You know, like somebody mm. could be quite sort of blasé with him. We put together a, a documentary and he's, he sort of sent us the work some of his earliest stuff and he's he's very sort of I don't want to speak about it but it's you know it's all interesting I find interesting yeah it is interesting when people yeah don't want to speak about the earlier stuff mm. going back it gets a sort of golly and ident like I get it your early stuff is, is flawed perhaps or it's in the past and you want to look to the future kind of thing but you know me and you being the adorable geeks that we are Obviously, that's the kind of stuff we want to talk about at yeah, length. Exactly. Well, this is it. I mean, when Daniel created these films, when he created, for example, Family Tree back in 1980-something, he knew that shot for shot. He painted every cell. He drew every bit. He's probably sick of it. But then the nerds turn up and we turn up and say, oh, tell us more about this bit here. And he's like, oh, God, I don't want to talk about that. I don't even like it myself. You know, and maybe, hmm. maybe. Uh, but anyway, he won the Academy Award in 1991 for a film that I think is incredible called Manipulation. I think you described it quite well, saying that it had a kind of uh, duck-a-muck quality to it in being that it's about a an animator versus his creation. A yeah. guy who just, just draws a quick pencil sketch of a character on a piece of paper, the character comes to life, and then it's about the interaction between the man and the... Uh, and the medium. And it's, it's something that he, he, he progresses in his films, Daniel Greaves. He kind of, that technique, the guy jumping off the paper, but still being a piece of paper, that progressed into his next film, you know, Flat World, and, you know, ideas keep progressing. Mm -hmm. It's interesting seeing the combination of mediums used for that sort of good storytelling effect, like for, you know, with manipulation, you know, you have traditional, and you also have pixelation to a degree, and a little bit of stop motion. And then with, like, Flat World... If I'm thinking of the right one, that's, again, traditional and stop-motion kind of combined. Like, flat is, characters yeah. traditionally animated but filmed in a stop-motion environment. And it is nice seeing that little extra layer of effort go into something. There's a fantastic uh, documentary about it. I think it's called Flat World Unfolded or, or, or something like that. And it's just about the whole process of making the film. Right. It's available on Vimeo, I think, available on, on YouTube. I would in, encourage people to go and go and uh, search that out and find out a little bit more about the production of Flat World. But basically, him and his team animated the entire thing and then photocopied the cells onto cardboard. The cardboard was then cut out very carefully and stood up in an actual real set. So you've got these characters, you know, wandering around, these two-dimensional characters. And obviously, there's, there's a whole array of jokes about the medium. And he's very conscious that the audience understand the medium in his films. Mm-hmm which is great. I think that's a great uh, idea. And in his latest film, Mr. Plastermine, he's very happy for people to know that he's, as much as he's a character that's alive, he's also a lump of plastic that has a life and that, that, that gets smudged, that gets 
grubby that gets bits in him. I think it's an interesting, a fresh take on that particular animation process. Well, I like it. anything that kind of embraces the tactile nature of, of how it's put together, the flawed, imperfect side of things. You know, mm. smudges and the digital age we live in, we don't ever see dirt on acetate cells anymore. It's much harder to kind of get the sense of, of craft behind something. Well, even with something, you know, like stop motion now and, and you know, the way they do Paranorman and everything with 3D printers, pirates, etc. To a degree, uh, that doesn't ruin the film, obviously, but the smoothness and the slickness and everything that gives it that kind of filmic legitimacy, uh, you know, there's that charm to uh, to the older ways of doing things. Yeah, there was an era era of Disney when they used to photocopy acetate cells, you know, and you get the, the pencil scribbles, you know, you get yeah. the, the, the construction of the characters and things like that. Uh, and that's very much in manipulation. You know, you see yeah. the character as a, as a constructed character, which is great, which is great. As well as manipulation and flat world, he also created Beginning, Middle and End and a film called Little Things, uh, which is where he kind of got loads of animation sketches, all different styles, all different characters that you wouldn't associate from the same universe and then put them all together for this big punchline. Set up Tandem Films 1986. Tandem Films, you may recognise on just about every advertisement on the television, <laughs> uh, which is good. You know, the Ribena Berries adverts, they sort of started them. You all may also remember Simon's Cats, created by Simon Tofield, one of the directors there. Daniel Greaves is there in the background overseeing that nicely. Also, some other directors of note at Tandem Films. A lot of people that I think probably the animation people out there will be familiar with for their short films, like uh, Peter Bainton and uh, Susie Templeton, director of the most depressing film ever made. So, you know. Dog. That, that, yeah. You guessed it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was the first time I've ever seen anyone cry at an animation. Was it you? I was sat in a cinema and just... I just heard this noise, this like whimpering noise, and it was just full of people clutching handkerchiefs, just sort of wailing to themselves. Mm. On that depressing note. <laughs> Peter Bainton, is he the guy who did the, the film about the old ladies escaping the nursing home? Uh, over the Hill. Yeah, was that's that, all. Yeah, yeah. This did uh, Save Our Bacon, which I quite like as well. This sort of animation hothouse in Islington, London, invited an animation geek down last July, actually. This interview was taken to talk about Mr. Plastimine. This is before he wanted to make it a Kickstarter project. So we'll just talk more about his career and about a bit more about his own animation processes. If you don't really know who Daniel Greaves is, I think he's an animator that, that you should really investigate. Find out a little bit more about Mr. Plastimine. His film is coming out very soon, hopefully. He's put together a Kickstarter campaign to raise the last amount of cash needed just to get it over the finishing line. Well, my interest is piqued. Let's go ahead and hear the interview. Just a note about this interview, if you hear Daniel Greaves talking about Grey Area, that's when he's talking really about Mr. Plastimine. Uh, Grey Area was the uh, working title for the film when this interview took place. So, Daniel Greaves, uh, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly. I thought it'd be great if you could let us know your first taste of animation. How did you first get bitten by the animation book? When I was around um, 12, 13, I knew... I was going to do something in art. My dad was an artist, and still is. And I was surrounded by art materials and artworks, so I was obviously very influenced by that. At the time, I just wanted to do something in that field. So I, I then got into animation. I drew, I drew a lot anyway, um, and then I sort of thought animation would be an interesting direction to go in. So I bought a Super 8 camera. 
set up from the tripod. I did my first test pieces on a, a very crude system and then sent the film off and that was it. Came back two weeks later and just absolutely got a bug. Just loved it. Just saw, saw the result and it was amazing. And then that was and then I just tried different ways, different ex, you know, experimentation and animation, different techniques, uh, tried to stop frame, cut out, drawn, uh, and pixelation as well. Did a lot of pixelation in the garden with my friends and family and that sort of thing. It was just magical to me. The whole the whole process was just really fascinating. So that was uh, that's what really kicked it off. Hmm. And then I went to college, uh, Farnham, and did a three-year course in 1977 to 80. Was that in animation or was that in yeah. media or anything like that? It was animation, yeah. And from, from Farnham, did you, where did you go? From, from Farnham, I was fortunate enough to get um, a job with a company called Ian Eames Animation. I was a fan of his work anyway. He'd done a lot of the Pink Floyd projections for Dark Side of the Moon and his, his work was you know, really innovative and it seemed to be the, the, the way I thought about animation as well. So fortunately he gave me a, um, a job there, starting from in-betweening Trace and Paint in those days. So I worked on commercials for him for a few years and then I also freelanced at other companies at the time. And I met a few people along the way, um, one of which was my uh, current partner, Nigel Pay, who was working at Ian's at the time we set up. Tandem Films in 1986. Basically, we continued from where we left with Ian Eames's work. We kind of continued because he, Ian Eames himself, went into live action. So we effectively bought all his equipment and remained in his studio and continued from where he left off. So we continued doing commercial work and um, BBC title sequences um, as a way of making a living. But all the time, I've I had this ambition to make my own films. And in fact, the first film I made in 1988 was called uh, Family Tree, okay. uh, which is a paint-traced uh, film, a 2D animation. It took a few years, probably about four or five years. Wow. Yeah, it was a very strange film. It didn't really have a direction. It had good moments in it. I'm still pleased with quite a lot of it, but I don't really um, display it very often. Oh, right. And I think because of that, the way that film was made, um, because it was, uh, it was quite convoluted and, and complicated, I thought I've just got to simplify it right down to the basics. So manipulation came out of that. I wanted to do something very simple, very quickly, well, su supposedly very quickly, although it took two and a half years to make. Um, but it was just a drawn character. I just wanted to keep, I just wanted to keep it with no colour, keep it fresh. I got the idea of a hand interacting with the, with the character quite early on and then just use that as a basis for the concept of the film. And it just took off from there. And the film was quite, quite an organic process. I sort of made it up as I went along, really. I didn't have a storyboard. Um, I just had the, the idea of the character coming to life by the animator, or being drawn by an animator, and then fighting with the... So it's, it's battle between the creator and the created character mm -hmm. um, and then that became the, the idea of the film and then I just I just made it up as I, as I went along. Gags just came into my head as I, as I drew it and then it ended up being around about six minutes and uh, taking two and a half years. 
So the manipulation, it had a mixture of stop motion, pixelation, 2D. They were your hands, weren't they, in yes. the film? Yeah. Um, when you were holding the character and the, the 2D, the character came alive uh, as a piece of paper in your, in your hand. That moved on to form the basis of an entire film Yes. Uh, in 1997. Yeah, for Flatworld. Flatworld, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Flatworld came around? There was that scene in um, Manipulation where the character literally torn off the page and he's, he's struggling and, and well, I'm trying to hold him tight in my fingers. And I was amazed at how the look of that character against, against the, the background and how believable it was that he was animating fairly fluidly <laughs> but creating a shadow in the back. You were aware that he was this kind of vulnerable sort of material, this paper character. And I thought, wow, if you could, you could then take that into another dimension and put it into a set, individually cut out the characters and put them into a set. You know, the notion of that really appealed to me that you could, you could create a world of cut out characters in a, like a cardboard world. They can turn on the edge and uh, are still believable as, as real things, you know, <laughs> you know, with, with a life and a, a character to them. Then I start thinking of it in a kind of very sort of epic way as being the world, which is a flat disc, um, which is literally a, um, you know, a flat world with um, buildings and the characters and everything purely made out of cardboard and paper. and, and paper-related items such as staples and sellotape and, and making a, a joke about it. And it really did become a film about animation, about the process of animation. Could you tell us a little bit more about that process? Was it a case of test animation first and then uh, making them stand up? I didn't really worry about the registration of the characters because I just thought, well, if, you keep, if you're doing a walk, and I think the first test I did was a dog walking along the ground and I thought well there's always one foot that remains on the ground that always has to sit on the ground for balance so as long as I've got that foot in place in the same place and just put a little pencil mark on the floor then he should in principle look like he's walking convincingly on a, on a flat plane <laughs> you know it's quite straightforward really um, so basically the process was um, animating on paper first making sure the animation was um, good and what the, the, the weight and, and, and the characterization was good. Then um, I photocopied the drawings onto cardboard and then cut them out and then coloured them in and then put a little bit of um, lead metal behind them as support, little L-shaped support and then literally stood them up um, and had them all numbered sequentially and then replaced one by one and then shot in turn and then obviously the, the result is that it looks like it's a, a cardboard character walking around in a cardboard environment mm. casting a shadow that was a the, the lovely thing all these bonuses you get with that you don't really necessarily think about too much but when you put them against a wall for instance or something which is undulating and the, the way the shadow wraps around that surface looks great you know it's, once i established the technique then it was a case of making a, a, a good, compelling story out of it. You then uh, created The Little Things yes. a film, which is a series of, I would say, a series of shorts which, which come together in a very theatrical way. 
Could yeah. you tell us a little bit more about the things? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because um, each previous film seems to inform the next somehow. And uh, I don't know if everybody works this way, but you always get clues from your previous film to what the next film is going to be about. Or as a result of going through, you know, a hard process. So, like, Flat World was quite intense, and there's a lot of people who we were slightly out of our depth and we didn't realise that, you know, the complexities and the, the kind of situation we get into with that, and finance and all this sort of thing. And uh, so, as a result of that, I wanted to make very short little films. You know, I had lots of little ideas, and I thought it would be nice to do a kind of like a fast show to the sketches, really, that mm. were unrelated, just totally different characters differently designed, um, didn't relate at all, but, and, and, and very different kind of concepts in each film, but keep them short and punchy gags, and the gags could be observational or surreal, quirky. That was the plan. So I got together with a, another writer, animation director called Jim Lefebvre, and we sat down and just scribbled out loads of ideas and pieces of paper and put them all out on the table. They were quite random, quite randomly selected, but we wanted them all to be very different, mm -hmm. have a different feel. We just chose seven of the best ideas out of about 20 ideas, which we, we thought would make lovely little animated films in their own right, mm -hmm. without the intention of ever having them linked together. So I set about then getting some directors, different directors, in to put their thoughts and uh, ideas into it, and they could do the idea was for them to design the character and backgrounds and to animate it their way but take the idea we put forward in these little scribbled notes mm -hmm. and then after a while when I started assembling them all I thought it would be fun and quite unexpected to have them linked together um, and then at the end just to have this catalyst and a big event that, which would bring all these characters together in some way so I came up with the idea of a meteor hitting the planet and then them sort of coming back together in the same little space in this kind of heaven to hell type. Purgatory stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, just, it's kind of, they can't get away from their foibles <laughs> and these this repetitive kind of routines that they, they end up being in. Yeah. That was quite unexpected, I think, for the audience to suddenly see that happening. And the, the bow at the end is sort of a a reminder that you are at the end of the day a viewer and uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's the direct, up to the director. Yeah, that was, a, that was a real afterthought as well, but I thought it would be really nice to have, you know, that after that final sort of blackout and then to have the characters all coming back in a row as though there's all been a big theatrical performance, I thought it was quite, quite fun during the credits. Yeah. What, what did that film inform moving forward? What did Then after, after that, I, I was going through a pretty tough time in my private life and a way to deal with that. I didn't keep a diary. I made a film instead and the film really, I didn't know what the film was really about, but it was, it was a hand-drawn film about uh, what turned out to be life and death. And it was a cyclic film. It starts off with an egg. Inside the egg, something comes out and, and then the egg, the rest of the egg collapses and dies. And then the thing that comes out of the egg then gives birth to something else, and that in turn collapses and dies. It was quite a dark art house film, I suppose. Quite a lot of subconscious stuff coming out, and I didn't really know what it was about. So that was quite, 
quite an interesting. It, it wasn't about entertainment suddenly or about you know cartoony animation. It was something quite dark. And then after that, I made another film called Speechless, which is also black and white. And again, I suppose there's some sort of quite dark tones in there. Yeah. And um, even though the subject matter wasn't really about life and death, it was mm. about the people being dependent on mobile phones and emailing and new technology and not be able to speak uh, you know, while they are doing that. It's interesting the way these, these thoughts come to me you know, mm. from one film to the next. It usually is a kind of organic process in the way that this, the films do influence the next one, each one in turn. Yeah. I think as, uh, as an animator, somebody with, with so many years animation uh, experience, it's almost second nature, so it is a, an outlet, a, a, a way of, of showcasing an emotion as well as a, yeah. a, of dealing with things, a therapy almost. Yeah, and I think a lot of films are very personal, and there's a lot of observational stuff in there, which is um, something that I've either observed or experienced myself, and concepts that are very close to my heart coming to the subject matter of the films. Mm -hmm. A tandem does extremely well with its directors and its films. Yeah. I mean, a, a flash animation test quickly became the internet sensation, which is Simon's Cat. You must have a certain pride in, in your directors and your uh, the guys that work here. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And they're all very individual. They've all got their own way of thinking, their own styles. Uh, Simon Tofield has been working with us since uh, Flat World. About 95, I think, no, 94 it started in tandem. And, um, and uh, I, I could immediately see a talent there. And uh, he was a, a major contributor to Flatwork. Did he animate the cat? He animated the cat. Did he? Yeah, <laughs> that's where Simon's cat originates from. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, well, it's, you know, it's changed. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, Come as a bigger eyes for a start, <laughs> uh, and sort of probably simpler and, and much more graphic, and because it's just a black and white character. So Simon contributed to Flat World and Little Things, and um, commercials in between mm -hmm. those films. And it was great to see him come up with this little short film, the very first Simon's Cat film, um, of his own bat, and that was from the result of uh, learning Flash. So he, he just did his little film, which then found its way onto YouTube somehow. We didn't put it on, but it found its way onto YouTube and uh, generated all these hits. Uh, and uh, we thought, well, we, we need to do something about this and commission some more. It's obviously popular. Yeah. What do you think the success of Silence Cats down to? Do you think it's a familiarity with a feline for people? Or yeah, it's uh, the simplicity of the animation. Um, beautifully observed, people who have cats can see their own cats in the animation. And the timing is incredible, it's really beautiful and understated, and it's got a lot of charm. And they're, and they're nice bite-sized films, lovely little vignettes. You do an awful lot of work in, in commercials as well, and you have an awful lot of very talented directors. Uh, yeah. Well, everybody has, like I say, everybody has their own styles, all the directors. We try and get the broad range, uh, so we have uh, some CGI directors, flash directors, you know, people who specialise, they feel comfortable in the style they're working in. Stop motion, uh, right across the board. But what works really well is, uh, is because of the 
I suppose, the way this studio is structured. People can see what each other are doing, and that's, I think, very important because you feel for each other and get inspired. And then, of course, when with commercial work, um, we, we've got the capability of everyone um, working together, doing their own thing, and creating a commercial a lot. Quite a lot of our commercial work is done in a similar way to we, in the way we make films with mixed media. So, um, because we've got everybody who's very diverse and we can work together in a, in a very um, efficient and uh, you know, productive way. Somebody can, who wants to commission an advert can come and take the pick, really. Yeah. Which style would you like? That's right, yeah, yeah. And they might have uh, a, a style in their head, you know, they might just say whether well, it's going to be a stop motion or it's going to be a CG. We like to encourage them to think that there's possibilities of mixing the styles, you know. Um, sometimes it's an, a, a, a comedy decision as well. Sometimes we can't afford to do it, say if it's a stop motion and they want it to be shot in a real location, an outdoor location. We would argue that you can actually shoot in the studio, like we did a series of Ribena commercials, and we shot those in the studio down here with real things like grass, we've just got a load of turf and made a tree, for instance, you know, and made the background sets and if you light it in a certain way, you can create a world which looks like it's been set outside. A lot of that's come from our DOP, Simon Paul as well, who has this great cinematic sense of, of how these things should be shot and it suddenly becomes very big and it feels like you're you know, in the outdoors. And then finding ways of employing the guys upstairs or the directors and using their talents to, to bring in their ideas into, into the process. It's, it's, a, it's a great way to work. Brilliant. Yeah. So I suppose this leads uh, nicely on to Grey Area, the new film. Yeah. Could you tell us as much as you can at this very early stage of the process about yeah. the film? Well, the idea I came about probably about a year or two, two years ago, I think. And I want to do something with mime because it's actually perfect for animation. Mime artists, you know, as you know, um, uh, are universally recognised as um, people who perform with nothing. And I thought, well, it'd be great to do something in animation using that because you can control it to the frame um, and make a very convincing effect of, of using a character animated to nothing by being able to control exactly where his hands will be and his eye line and, and his performance. So I thought, well, if you've got that to start with, then what happens with the character when he actually goes out of his environment, which is performing on stage? Uh, and I thought, well, maybe he continues. Uh, we can't quite get out of character and he continues performing his mind acts by chance at home, but he's actually working with real physical things. So I started thinking about all the possibilities and writing down as individual ideas of what you can do with all the kind of classic mind routines, and then formulated the story from that. So it's, it's gone through different drafts, uh, the script has changed and changed, and, uh, and I finally ended up with um, a story where he's performing on stage, and he's competent, but a little bit dull as an act. Um, it's not really going anywhere and the audience are leaving um, apart from one who's, who's a significant um, other character in the film and she's uh, enamoured by his uh, skills as a mime artist. So he goes home and essentially she 
she lives two floors up from his flat and uh, there's a, a fire breaks out and he hears this commotion and has to go and save her and during that process he goes through all these classic mind routines I won't tell you the ending but that's kind of essentially it and what's great about that is that you can actually use the same animation of the character who's performing on stage as, as you do when he's at home and then you just draw in or as in this case we're creating all the background environments in the CG and then, um, and then making him look like he, he blends in with it. So that's essentially the, the, the concept. Mm -hmm. You know, it's got some excitement, it's got some peril, it's got some comedy, it's got observation. So it's, it's the usual stuff and hopefully it'll be entertaining. Excellent. Which sounds a little bit more about the technique. So it's a plasticine character and the reason why I chose plasticine is because, um, well one, I've never done any plasticine animation before and I thought it would be fun to try. Another challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, and also because I like, I wanted to make something with the medium, like I have done in the past with, with cardboard and paper and even 2D, you know, uh, I've, I've tried pushing the boundaries. And with this I wanted to again play with the medium uh, so there's a towards the end where he's going through all this um, drama he's getting more and more battered and I just wanted the plastic to behave like it does you know which is to get knackered and smudgy and because he's black and white he gets very dirty anyway um, the animator finds it quite hard to keep him clean because he's animating the black and white areas and um, and he's finding that you know the, the black gets into the white, and she has to keep keep it clean. And I said, "Well, that's great for this part of the film, but later on, you can really relax and just just let it go because it, he, he needs to get all dirted up and and squashed. And he, you know, he walks into walls and his face gets squashed like plasticine does, and he ends up like this just blob of you know mangled <laughs> plasticine. And it just feels right, you know, to do that." Yeah, um, and and it's, again, it's a nod to the medium we're working in. I thought it'd be, you know, great fun to do, to do that. Excellent, Daniel Greaves. Thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Thank you very much. And good luck with the film. Thank you. Some insight from Daniel Greaves of Tandem Films, chatting to our very own Mr. Stephen Henderson. Good job, sir. Well, thank you very much. If you are interested in, in what Daniel's creating at the moment, uh, Mr. Plastimime, uh, you should follow him on Twitter, at Mr. Plastimime, and you should also follow him on Facebook, uh, which gives you regular updates as to as to how the film's coming along. It's nice to see all the, all the sketches and drawings and doodles and what's-its and, and everything else involved in the creative process, and I would heartily recommend uh, uh, throwing a few quid his way. Certainly, and also check out Steve's video featurette on the making of Mr. Plastomime. That's up on our Squiggly Vimeo channel, vimeo.com forward slash squiggly, or just check it out on squiggly.co.uk. So thank you to our anniversary editions interviewees, Mr. Richard Starzak, a.k.a. Golly, creative director of Sean the Sheep, and all manner of other lovely Ardman things. Of course, Ardman can be found at ardman.com, and Richard himself is on Twitter at Mr. Golly, MR Golly. So give him a good old fashioned British following. Also, thanks to Daniel Greaves. You can find out more about Mr. Plastomime. Follow Mr. Plastomime on Twitter and search for Mr. Plastomime on Facebook. And uh, uh, yeah, 
see how that turns out. So that's it for another Squiggly Podcast. The Squiggly Podcast is presented by myself, Steve Henderson. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S Underscore Henderson. It's also presented by Mr. Ben Mitchell. You can follow him on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. Squiggly is also a website, so if you want to find out more about animation, uh, news, reviews, interviews, old podcasts, then go along to squiggly.co.uk. So don't forget you can email Ben at ben at squiggly.co.uk or you can call 0117 230 0037 with all your work horror stories. So we're really looking forward to hearing some of those for the next podcast. The Squiggly Podcast is edited and produced by Ben Mitchell. Music by Wesley Allard and Ben Mitchell. Don't forget you can follow Squiggly on Twitter at Squiggly or on Facebook. Just search for Squiggly Animation Magazine. Until the next Squiggly Podcast. Um, bye. Ta-ra. We really need to come up with a, a sign-off and maybe a catchphrase. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was that was greeted with the kind of uh, open arms I expected. Then, <laughs> why don't we have the the cringiest catchphrase imaginable competition? Yeah. Until next podcast, have an animated couple of weeks. <laughs> you see, because it's cartoon. <laughs> no, but we like to have fun. But let's not go over the top. Happy animating, boys and girls. Oh God.